Welcome to Season 2 of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry Podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. Season two of the podcast includes lectures written and delivered by Dorothea Lasky during her tenure as a Bagley Wright lecturer, and links to accessory materials like transcriptions, interviews, and other writings. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, subscribe now. This week, we'll hear Dorothea Lasky give her lecture, What is Color in Poetry, or Is It the Wild Wind in the Space of the Word? This lecture was originally given September 20th, 2013, at New York University. Following the lecture, we'll hear a conversation on color between Lasky and mixed-media painter, illustrator, and muralist Tiffany Patterson. Dorothea Lasky's lectures explore the nonlinear and highly complex relationship between language, creativity, states of being, and meaning-making, considering, for example, the eye as multiplicitous shapeshifter in search of the wild power of poetry. Please enjoy this episode. So I'm going to be reading this lecture, uh, and uh, it's going to go on for about an hour. So I would just get comfortable and, yeah, you know, if you, if you uh, need to leave, maybe get a Slurpee or something, that's a, you probably have time, so, because there's, there's available stuff. But, um, so anyway, the, na- uh, the name of my lecture is, What is Color in Poetry, or Is it the Wild Wind in the Space of the Word? And I start the lecture with um, a quotation from Lewis Carroll from Through the Looking Glass, and it's, it's more like a corkscrew than a path. And I'm going to designate uh, sections, which is my finger. Who did I see do that? I, it may have been Matt. So I actually am, uh, yeah, bri- passing the torus of invention in this very space, which I may have seen it done first, and I'll just go like this. Anyway, it's great to be here um, at the writer's house. So here we go. Uh, One, not a path but a corkscrew to begin. I cite Lewis Carroll to begin this lecture because I found its placement in a book called The Rainbow Book, a collection of essays and illustrations devoted to rainbows in particular and spectral sequences in general. This 1975 color compendium is devoted to thinking about the meaning behind our visible spectrum that has in many ways inspired this entire lecture. It is an important book to me because I spied it once at Joshua Beckman's house several years ago and it was like a dormant light was turned on once again. I think that when Joshua saw me in my sleeping light all lit up, he was afraid I would steal his book, knowing how much I think about color and poetry. I must confess that I didn't steal it, but I did think about it, and after I left his house, had to run online and buy two copies for myself. The quotation within the book begins a discussion of the gyre, the idea that Yeats was fond of, at least in part, that time is not a linear path, but a swirling spectrum of events and occurrences. 
I think our idea that the color spectrum is a linear construct is just as faulty as our idea that time is. Poems know this, that neither time nor visible color nor being falls down a straight path. What is meaning if not something you can't find in a neat set of steps? A poem is special because its logic is emotional and aesthetic and resists the traditional ways logic seeks to jail itself. Color is special because there is no way to pin it down. It has a live wire that illuminates its frequency. Of course, a poem does too. I digress a good bit already. I mean to tell you now before I totally begin that this lecture will explore the relationships between color and poetry. It will delve into some ideas by color theorists as well as discuss specific poems that use color well, however we want to define that. It will also give gentle suggestions for where future poetry can start to go in using color in new ways. In the spirit of disclosure, I must tell you that this lecture has taken many forms over the past year. I have written parts of it and then abandoned it, taken it up again, and preparing for this lecture this summer, reaching an impasse of thinking, starting one draft of this and starting up again. I put my ideas on color in another lecture to be given in a future lecture of this set called On the Materiality of the Imagination. The topic is bigger than I could ever even begin today. And in throwing all my colors into the wind over several months, I wrote the simple couplet one day in my notes to begin again. I love color, and that is all that I love. It may be that this is really the truth. I always forget that my mother is a painter and what that might mean to me and the lens with which I read poetry. I recently told some friends casually that my mother was a painter, and one of them, a wonderful poet named Emily Pettit, said, well, it all makes sense. That's why you love color. It's true that my house growing up was always ablaze with color, bright objects and paint everywhere. Every vacation involved either purchasing an art object or visiting a museum. Color was our religion. My mother hung Navajo rugs in almost every room, and when I close my eyes to this day, I see the pulse of bright red, orange, and teal triangles of our living room eye dazzler. All families have big issues that they discuss constantly, but our big issue was color. Instead of baseball or politics, my mother and I talked a lot about what made a particular object come alive. One lifelong family discussion was a wooden rocking chair my mother made and stained for me when I was two. She asked me what color I wanted it stained, red or blue. I chose blue clearly, but she thought to herself, what toddler has that kind of color preference? Growing up, being the pain in the ass that I was, this was always a point of contention for me, and I always found reason to bring it up. That red, rocking, tiny rocking chair should have been blue, I'd exclaim whenever I was in a bad mood. As a teenager, we had a choice between red or blue for a lounge chair, and of course, blue when it's due out finally. 
When I first started writing poems around age seven, I would memorize them and recite them to anyone who would listen. One I would always recite was called Blue Dignity. So I will share it with you now because, hey, why not? You're all here to listen to me. Just remember this is written by a seven-year-old. Blue dignity is suddenly black and brown and gray, other colors that cause flack. A sapphire poses amongst a bed of roses, and strength and triumph remain where gracefulness refrain. Oh, copper-colored cream, what did I dream? Don't replay the past or snakes will wrath. Violets, violets of the sea, why did you leave me? Perhaps because of this personal history, I can't help but see that color has a kind of bi-directional meaning making, especially with art and everyday objects. One can choose what color they are, and this choice makes meaning upon them, and then changes what meaning you put upon them. Choosing an object's color is much like naming a baby. You can find the right thing, hopefully. You can paint, restain, reupholster. Color is a malleable thing based on mood, on time. Color can change or can stay the same and react to people in its environment. In this way, color is a live wire. When you read poems that get color right, there are a million possibilities of what that color could be, but a certainty that that color the poet cho chose is correct among a million different possibilities. When poems get color right, there is a kind of color fate to the pairing between visible and energetic frequency and the word and the sound of the word. Perhaps Rimbaud got the connection between color and language best in his poem Vowels, which sets upon to illustrate a colored alphabet within a poem. And here's the poem. Black A, white E, red I, green U, blue O, vowels. Someday I will open your silent pregnancies. A, black belt, hairy with bursting flies, bumbling and buzzing over stinking cruelties. Pits of night, E, candor of sand and pavilions, high glacial spears, white kings, trembling Queen Anne's lace. I, bloody spittle, laughter dribbling from a face, in wild denial or in anger, vermilions. You, divine movement of viridian seas, piece of pastures, animal strewn, piece of calm lines, drawn on foreheads, worn with heavy alchemies. O oh, supreme trumpet, harsh with strange stringencies, silences traced in angels and astral designs. O oh, Omega, the violet light of his eyes. In this poem, Rimbaud sends up the one-to-one -one correspondence that Jabez talks about in the Book of Questions between a progression of letters as a progression of time and a life. As Jabez writes, the letters of the alphabet are contemporaries of death. They are stages of death turned into signs, death of eternal death. But there are other signs which the letters covet, erase signs reproduced by gestures at the heart of what is named. Thus the bird's takeoff contains all form of flight. 
Perhaps that to name a letter is to name a color too, is to set a finite progression of colors and letters and things that fold upon each other in the voraciously eating vortex of time, that is not a corkscrew but a path, that is all moments, all colors, letters, all forms of flight, that is the dormant light all lit up. Perhaps then we, that when we connect color to language to sound in the space of a poem, we reconnect and resist what Breton has named the tragic bifurcation of the so-called real and dream worlds that happen to all adults. Perhaps this is poetry's purpose in our lives, to reconnect the real and dream worlds to one's own dormant light. Of course, I believe the easiest way to do this with language is through the perfect use of color. What of image, what of color? I have always thought that HD's poems are so perfect because they focus closely on images and make sure that her picture of whatever she mentions in her poem is shared completely with her reader. Take, for example, her poem, Sea Violet. The white violet is scented on its stalk. The sea violet, fragile as agate, lies fronting all the wind among the torn shells on the sandbank. The greater blue violets flutter on the hill, but who would change for these? Who would change for these one root of the white sort? Violet, your grasp is frail on the edge of the sand hill, but you catch the light. Frost, a star edges with its fire. In this poem, H.D. focuses on the image of the sea violet for all three stanzas of the poem. Even when she describes the greater blue violets in the second stanza, it is to compare them to the sea violet and their ultimate unworthiness. The sea violet describes so well, over and over again, turned over again and again, to be peered at many angles by the reader, becomes part of a shared imagination with the reader. By the end of the poem, H.D. and the reader share the image of the sea violet, its gorgeous white flower body embodied as imaginative reality in both of their minds. Part of H.D.'s achievement, I might argue, has to do with her keen use of color. It is the white of the sea violet and the blue of the other violets which serve to distinguish both so simply and so dramatically. Part of this is probably due to her belief as an imagist, as she wrote in their manifesto that a poem must give direct treatment of the thing, whether subjective or objective, and absolutely no word that does not contribute to the presentation. It is the perfect choice of colors that gives direct treatment of a thing within a poem, makes sure no word does not contribute to the presentation, and makes the shared imagination, the shared imaginative space and material of the reader and poet, at least in part for one second, in communion. The violets in H.D.'s poem have been agreed upon between poet and reader, at least in part because of their colors. H.D. famously called herself the modern Sappho, and part of her love of Sappho seems to be her love of Sappho's use of colors. If you have ever read Sappho, particularly Anne Carson's gorgeous translation, you know how vivid Sappho used the colors violet and yellow, and how they figure in constant vibration with each other due to their complementary natures. As in, Sappho writes of the one with violets in her lap, Having come from heaven wrapped in a purple cloak, a bridegroom, her hair placing the lyre, dawn with gold sandals. 
In her essay, the wise Sappho H.D. writes, There is gold, too. Was it a gold the poet meant? I think the words of Sappho as these colors, as states, rather, transcending color yet containing, as great heat the compass of the spectrum, all color. I might here make the argument that color is a kind of conduit that connects the spiritual and material worlds, that as H.D. wrote, that it means when color is used in a poem, is used to great effect, it becomes transcending color, containing the great heat, the compass of the spectrum, all color. I guess that what I'm trying to say here is that through the use of color, it's not simply a direct decorative element in a poem. Color makes an expanse, a field, a shared formal field with which to plant more shared components of the material imagination. Color makes this space bigger, this imaginative space more specific and bigger, gives it weight, makes it solid. There is a society, and I'm going to probably mispronounce this word, but it's piraha. That's the name of the society. It is said that their people have no word for colors. So that whereas if we were to describe a red flower, they might describe the color of it as the thing that is like blood. Likewise, a blonde girl's hair might be described as the thing that is like the sun. Even without the specific color words, people can communicate the tone and weight of a color through language. It is not about the magic of a word for color. It is about the magic of sharing the weighted imaginative space between speaker and listener that a description of color can produce. To describe a thing's color is to make the energy of it change. In the following Bernadette Mayer poem, she changes the energy of the poem each time she changes the color in each new line, always including a color. And the poem is called Very Strong February, and I'm going to read it right now. A man and a woman pretend to be white ice, three men at the lavender door are closed in by the storm, with strong prejudice and money to buy the green pines. One weekend fishermen and blue painters watch the vivid violet winds blow visibility from the mountain beyond the black valley. That means, or then you know, you're in a big cloud of it. It's brilliant white mid-February, a week or two left on distracting black trees before the brownish buds obscure your view of the valley again. Looking for company, four dark men and a burnt sienna woman come in for three minutes, then bye-bye like a gold watch left on the chair. Or part of the sum of what big white families think up to store for long yellow Sundays, to eat for brown ecological company. At some point later, gorgeous red adventure stops. Did you forget to turn it down and laugh in the face of the fearful white storm anyway? Or picture a brilliant blue for a further Sunday memory in a coloring book? You talk it as lightly as you can, refusing a big pink kiss. You burn the Sunday sauce of crushed red tomatoes, you turn it down to just an orange glow. This particular storm, considering the pause and the greenish thaw before it, reminds me in its mildness of imitating a sea green memory that is actually in the future. 
I imitate and imagine trumpet sound or the brilliant purple words of a man or woman I haven't met yet. Or perhaps it's a gray-haired man I already know who said something yesterday to a mutual friend who will give me the whole story in black and white tomorrow. Or the day after, just as the big orange plows for the local businesses go to work to push away the rest of the white snow that will fall tonight. Almost every line in her poem includes a color. I often think to myself, what would this poem be without these colors? How would they contain their material realities? What is the black in a week or two left on distracting black trees? Without it, the line would be a week or two left on distracting trees. Without black, the trees are regular green and brown trees. What is the pink in refusing a big pink kiss? You burn the Sunday sauce. The bursting warmth of a pink kiss influencing the warm color of a tomato Sunday sauce in our imaginations. Without it, the line would be, refusing a big kiss, you burn the Sunday sauce. In this colorless line, the sauce could be any color, a burnt black and not as sexy and warm. What about the line or the brilliant purple words of a man or woman I haven't met yet? Without the purple adding a touch of royalty and strangeness to the words, the line would simply be, or the brilliant words of a man or woman I haven't met yet. Brilliant, non-color words that are flat and meaninglessness. <laughs> Meaningless. And meaninglessness. It is the colors in Mayer's poem that takes it from a didactic explanation of a series of meaninglessness. <laughs> Uh-oh, this is going to be a theme. Every day of it, I only use that word 200 more times, so this is all going to go well from here on out. Uh, Every day events into the spectral space of the poet's imagination, a bi-directional kind of looking between Mayer and us in the space of the poem, a multifaceted meaning-making machine, or a poem as they call it. So that when we use color in a poem, it is not an abstract state, but an association that has weight, that is tangible. A translation of reality. But again, what is reality? Is it the wild wind in the space of the word? The connection between the dream and the non-dream? And is this the waking? A poem helps us know. In Mayer's poem, color creates a kind of imaginative testimony. Both the poet and the reader are part of its testimony through the use of color and the way the color changes reality. Georg Trockel is a poet who creates a hallucinatory word, world through his mix of natural imagery and unnatural or supernatural use of color to reconnect the real and dream worlds. Take, for instance, his poem, An Evening. In the evening the sky was overcast, and through the grove full of silence and grief, a dark golden shower went. Distant evening bells faded away. The earth has drunk icy water. At the forest's edge a fire lay glowing. The wind quietly sang with angels' voices, and shivering I have gone to the knee in the heather in bitter cresses, Far outside clouds swam in silver puddles, desolate guards of love. The heath was lonesome and unmeasured. In Trockel's poem, the earth does something it can't really do, as it has drunk icy water. The forest is edged in fire, not a natural color like a darker brown would be. 
The clouds become inverted and turn into silver puddles. The rain is not clear water, but a dark golden shower. There is a quiet, hallucinatory quality to the poem, which in lots of ways is so disturbing, and due largely in part to color choice, that quietly creates a shared supernatural imagination between poet and reader. A poet like Rimbaud writes poems that are loud with their effect on the world. They have a louder register, but Trackle quietly changes the, nat the natural world and the imaginative space in the poem in the minds of poet and reader. Color in a poem can change the shared imaginative space the poem creates. It can make a new reality, one of the imperceptible coming into reality, completely terrifying, as in the following Wallace Stevens poem, Disillusionment of Ten O'Clock, where he embodies disembodied, disembodied nightgowns with hallucinatory color choices. The houses are haunted by white nightgowns. None are green or purple with green rings or green with yellow rings or yellow with blue rings. None of them are strange with socks of lace and beaded censures. People are not going to dream of baboons and periwinkles. Only here and there an old sailor, drunk and asleep in his boots, catches tigers in red weather. In the poem, Stevens uses lots of colors with simple color names, white, green, although he throws a gorgeous blurple like periwinkle in there. Still, he hints at the multiplicity of reality, at the effect of color on reality, with his purple with green rings and yellow with blue rings, which produce the unfamiliar, familiar feeling of the spiritual realm, the actual weirdness and awe of the ghosts that haunt the house in their white nightgowns, come in through the nightgowns that are unexpectedly non-white, the sad and drunk old sailor caught in a never-ending world of red weather. And the, also, and the poem also seems very concerned about the fact that in a colorless reality, people's imaginations aren't ignited, that people are not going to dream of baboons and periwinkles. They will only dream of an old soldier, the poor guy, here and there, not the fantastical blue-purple baboons and beyond. In Stephen's domination of black, we see color within the absence of color names. At night by the fire, the colors of the bushes and of the fallen leaves repeating themselves turn in the room like the leaves themselves, turning in the wind. Yes, but the color of the heavy hemlocks came striding, and I remembered the cry of the peacocks. The colors of their tails were like the leaves themselves, turning in the wind, in the twilight wind. They swept over the room just as they flew from the boughs of the hemlocks down to the ground. I heard them cry, the peacocks. Was it a cry against the twilight or against the leaves themselves, turning in the wind, turning as the flames, turned in the fire, turning as the tails of the peacocks, turned in the loud fire, loud as the hemlocks, full of the cry of the peacocks, or was it a cry against the hemlocks? Out of the window I saw how the planets gathered, like the leaves themselves, turning in the wind. I saw how the night came, came striding like the color of the heavy hemlocks. I felt afraid, and I remembered the cry of the peacocks. 
In Domination of Black, the only color Stevens uses is the color black in the title. After that color becomes the word, word color. We are up to our imaginative devices to imagine the vibrancy of the colors of the hemlocks and peacocks against the dominating black. The rhyming sound of them is a way to connect them, both multicolored and still full of complementary colors in the dominating lipstick red of the hemlock berry and then green-blue hues of the peacock's feathers. It is through the sound and absence of color that Stevens paints a, room, a poem full of colors through the stark and overbearing black. Color is not the only sensual detail a poet can use to create a shared imagination with his or her reader, but it is an overwhelming one, one that defends the idea of a material imagination, I might say vehemently. Color in the wild space of the word. In his theory of colors, Goethe writes, it will be more intelligible to assert that a dormant light resides in the eye and that it may be excited by the slightest cause from within or from without. In darkness we can, by an effort of the imagination, call up the brightest images. In dreams, objects appear to us as in broad daylight, awake, the slightest external action of light is perceptible. And if the organ suffers an actual shock, light and color spring forth. I love this idea that even in the absence of light, our imagination is readily capable of producing it in dreams, that the imagination houses a dormant light. I think that poets have, a very, have very strong dormant lights just waiting to be shared. Sometimes I think that if all poets used their dormant lights extensively, it would have a viral effect, and the brains of all of us would be even more lit up. Wittgenstein, in his remarks on color, gives poets a charge in explaining that we can often describe colors more accurately in words than we can recreate them. To be able generally to name a color is not the same as being able to copy it exactly. I can perhaps say, there I see a reddish place, and yet I can't mix a color that I recognize as being exactly the same. Try, for example, to paint what you see when you close your eyes, and yet you can roughly describe it. Although his points are arguable, they are exciting ideas to consider. Maybe poems' purposes are, too, to reconnect the real and dream worlds, to light our dormant lights, to describe the infinite colors that are impossible to perfectly recreate in the natural world. Maybe that is somehow the point and the purpose of being a poet, to describe what can't ever be again. Certain colors in the violet sun, the red hat and blue and red and blue. One strain of my interest in color and poetry started 13 years ago with my love of a poem called The Red Hat by Gertrude Stein. It reads, A dark gray, a very dark gray, a quite dark gray is monstrous ordinarily. It is so monstrous because there is no red in it. If red is in everything, it is not necessary. Is that not an argument for any use of it? And even so, is there any place that is better? Is there any place that has so much stretched out? When I first read that poem, it was a fall where I had already spent a summer thinking almost exclusively about the color red paired with the color aquamarine. 
I kept imagining making a necklace of aquamarines with one single bright red bead. The fantasy transcended into other mental images where red might be a singular thing in a sea of paler attributes. I imagined a room where everything was a pale blue except one red bowl. To connect myself physically to this idea, I would wear outfits where I only had one red thing on, one red sock, sparkly red glass earrings, a red hair tie, red fingernails, in the midst of an entire pale yellow ensemble. I became obsessed with red's power to drive everything else it came in contact with. So imagine my surprise after the thoughts of such a summer when I came upon Stein's poem and its lines seemingly directed at me. If red is in everything, it is not necessary. In classes in color and poetry I have taught, and I've taught some of them here, so thank you to the people who have sat through them that are in the audience that have to hear this again. Um, I often start with a set of exercises focusing on color within this poem. We read the poem and then I start asking questions steeped in her line. What does red make you think of? What would happen if red is in everything? What, is, what if this room were suddenly all red? I wear one red piece of clothing or jewelry that day and use it as a visual backdrop to the discussion. The conversation eventually turns to blood, even if it takes a while. I always make sure that it does. <laughs> My ulterior motives are now laid bare to Olivia. Blood could not be more important to Stein's line and to the exercise. After all, what is the effect of spaces drenched in red, but that they look like they are covered in blood? I think entirely red rooms look like they are drenched in blood, even if they are just painted. There is an alarm in the color red that seems to indicate that blood has been spilled. A place where red is literally in everything is one where I see there is danger. In Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, there is a scene where Jack Nicholson's murderous and alcoholic character Jack Torrance first meets while drunk the ghost of Delbert Grady, the hotel's past undertaker who killed his family, including his twin daughters. In this scene, Delbert Grady convinces Jack Nicholson to reenact his own horrible crime, and the bathroom is all red. And I might add, if you haven't seen it, there are some white tiles in it to seemingly lighten the mood, depending on your view of white. Whenever I watch that particular scene, I think of Stein's line and think, what does it mean again that red is necessary? Red has a necessity to express something intense, and when it is in everywhere, it is not necessary, because then everything is intense. Maybe this is like the red bathroom, where an evil ghost meets an evil man to transfer the metaphysical power of evil. After all, time is a corkscrew, a gyre. Could it be that all beings meet their match in a place of color intensity? Blood is red, red is blood. When you see your own blood outside of your body, you know something is wrong, unless it is expected. If red blood were everywhere, there would be no need for red and blood, and so forth. There are not enough books that focus on one color, but one I deeply love is William Gass's On Being Blue, where he bombastically states, blue postures, attitudes, blue thoughts, blue gestures. Is it the form or content that turns blue when these are? 
It is hard to know if it is the word that becomes its color in a poem when color is used. But what is true is that when a poem uses the right color, when the color becomes a thing, then it makes a space in the mind for the color. Another great book is Maggie Nelson's Lyrical Meditations on the Color Blue, and the book is called Bluets. And in the book, she falls in love with the color blue and sees it as an intense burning color. And as she writes, And so I fell in love with the color, in this case the color blue, as if falling under a spell, a spell I fought to stay under and get out from under in turns. Well, and what of it? A voluntary delusion, you might say, that each blue object could be a kind of burning bush, a secret code meant for a single agent, an X on a map too diffuse ever to be unfolded in entirety, but that contains the knowable universe. Sometimes I like to imagine red objects as their equal frequency in a blue shade, as painted in the same intensity of their redness as a twin blueness. When switching the color of objects in your imagination, you change everything about them and what surrounds them. For example, if I were imagining a woman with bright red-orange lips right now, and hey, why not? I might in my mind then imagine her with the lips the color of lapis lazuli cream. If I imagine a love scene with a bright red dress and some red wine, I can then easily see in my mind the same scene, but severely altered with a bright blue dress and navy-colored wine. What is the equal color of blood in its blue equivalent? It depends on where the blood is and if it is dried or fresh. If the bathroom scene from The Shining where Delbert Grady meets Jack Torrance was done up in its equivalent blue tile, it might have been different. Certainly the color temperature in the room and the mood it created would have set us up to view the transfer of evil in a very different way. A poem by Paul Salon called Death Fugue sees blue as a color symbolizing evil. And here are just the first two stanzas of that poem. Black milk of morning, we drink you at dusk time, we drink you at noontime and dawn time, we drink you at night, we drink and drink, we scoop out a grave in the sky where it's roomy to lie. There's a man in this house who cultivates snakes and who writes, who writes when it's nightfall, knock Deutschland, your golden hair, Margareta. He writes it and walks from the house and the stars all start flashing. He whistles his dogs to draw near, whistles his Jews to appear, starts a scooping a grave out of sand. He commands us to play for the dance. Black milk of morning, we drink you at night. We drink you at dawn time and noontime. We drink you at dusk time. We drink and drink. There's a man in this house who cultivates snakes and who writes, who writes when it's nightfall, not Deutschland. Your golden hair, Margareta, your ashen hair, Shulamite. We scoop out a grave in the sky where it's roomy to lie. He calls it jab deep in the soil. You lot there, you other men, sing and play. He tugs at the sword in his belt. He swings it. His eyes are blue. Jab your spades deeper, you men, you other men and you others play up again for the dance. Salon's poem reminds us what poetry can do, what brutality it can commemorate. The blue eye of the Nazi symbolizes the Aryan race. The whole history of the Holocaust is summed up with the choice of this blue eye, not green or brown, and the black milk is the doom of annihilation, of hopelessness. The golden hair of the lucky Margareta and the ashen hair of Shulamite echoing with perfect color the disparity between the hunter and the hunted. 
Likewise, a similar perfect choice of color to echo the brutality of being seen in Salon's poem is in Plath's Fever 103 Degrees, where she writes, and these are the closing stanzas of the poem. I think I am going up. I think I may rise. The beads of hot metal fly, and I love I am pure acetylene, virgin attended by roses, by kisses, by cherubim, by whatever these pink things mean. Not you nor him, nor him nor him, myself's dissolving old whore petticoats to paradise. Maggie Nelson has referred to Plath's choice of pink and whatever these pink things mean as being savagely sarcastic. Perhaps this is true as Plath's use of the casual whatever when discussing a person rising in hot red and pink colors, dying and or rising up to paradise, hurts any sense of sentimentality when you think about it. Of course, these pink things are not the simple feminine attributes of the poem's femaleish persona, but more the pinkness of flesh, skinned and dead as an animal object. These pink things that are sort of beside the point, the bodies and flesh we are all housed in. What sort of thing these poems do is to turn color on its head, Blue, a common color, becomes burning with an unlivable intensity in Maggie Nelson's blue poems and the steel gaze of the Nazi murderer in Salons, the sweetness and girliness of pink, a color to adorn a girl baby's room, becomes the soft and unsubstantial, unimportant flesh to house the spirit in Plath's poem. We are left with the question, what did... What is it that these poems can do with color and show us what poems can do? Future uses of color in poetry or the sounds of the poem is the sound of color is the progression of the spectrum and the problem of indigo. That's just the title. Contemporary American poets have boundaries to cross when using color in their work. David Batchelor famously argued in Chromophobia that since ancient times, Westerners have had a fear of using too much color. Isn't this true today? In the corporate color that pervades our ev- culture, whoops, in the corporate culture that pervades our everyday lives, in the professionalization that pervades all things now in America, or at least it feels that way, we are often warned about being too colorful. A recent random Google search I did for power colors, where my intent was to use these colors for spiritual practices, produced a whole host of websites warning job seekers and company employees to avoid wearing too much color. Why is this? Is it that color distracts one from one's corporate path? Is it that color ignites the spirit, a dormant light? Does the spirit have no place in one's work anymore? It's not much to think about that we don't already know. If you were to buy a house today on any random street in America and were to decide to paint the outside bright turquoise with neon yellow and orange accents, you might get more than just a few strange looks. More likely you might be branded a weirdo, a crazy person, even someone dangerous. The value of your house would decline with its new colors. Color, even in its absence, contains more power than we give it credit for. 
Think to yourself right now of the last time you read a poem with the perfect color. What color was it? Was it an obvious one? A blue sky, a green tree, a red rose, a yellow sun? Did it symbolize something? A black door, a white dress? How did the expected or unexpected color put spirit in the poem? Was the sun violet? We all need to know the violet sun. Questions about colors are good questions to ask ourselves. In 2013, certainly a rose can be red, but it can also be a rose containing red, a rose rose, or even a carnation. And red can be many things. Aside from variations in color, there are, even just to begin, multichromatics that now appear in car paint and nail polish for poets to consider. When describing these new colors, a poem can refer to red, as red-green or red-silver, or also somehow a consistent color shift of red to green to purple to copper to blue, all within the span of a few seconds. I like what poetry can do when it is written by people who perceive and process color differently than most of us. In 1970, a poet named Hannah Wiener fasted for 21 days and wrote about how she began to see more clearly the color essence of things in a journal called The Fast. In her record, objects with their necessary color auras were always more than the color they were. They were also the radiating colors around them. Future poetry can take its cues for what colors can mean to language makers who aren't poets. In his book, Born on a Blue Day, autistic savant Daniel Tamant describes what colors mean to him. And he writes, some words are perfect fits for the things they describe. A raspberry is both a red word and a red fruit, while grass and glass are both green words that describe green things. Words beginning with the letter T are always orange, like a tulip or a tiger or a tree in autumn when the leaves turn orange. Conversely, some words do not seem to me to fit the things they describe. Geese is a green word but describes white birds. Heese would seem a better choice to me. Poetry can learn from people like Tammet and others on the autistic spectrum. Although it is not fully understood by researchers, there is the idea that color with processes like synesthesia is a sensual thing, that a word might have its own non-obvious color, that geese is a green word, even when a goose may not be green at all, and that words have their own objective properties, are objects after all. An idea that has always troubled me is how representations of the rainbow have always contained six colors, but that the visible spectrum contains seven. We all remember drawing rainbows as children. Rainbows are made up of red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and purple, but visible light is made up of red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and indigo, and violet, the spectrum we know lovingly as Roy G. Biv. I always take for granted that purple and violet are in some way the same color, but what is indigo? Indigo is a problem. Is the possibility of indigo the possibility of the wild wind? Is it the possibility of the wild wind in the space of the word? Is it a wild animal, a being beyond? Maybe if colors show us what is possible to do in a poem, indigo is the problem of poetry. Because of indigo, a seeming child of blue and violet, is if it's included in the spectrum, then why isn't teal or turquoise, the children of green and blue? Why isn't fire orange part of the spectrum or marigold? Where are these colors? 
And if indigo is possible, then maybe this is a reminder of what all poems can do, that all poems are the space between the real and the dream worlds, the platform between the living and the dead. To conclude, in theory, <laughs> sigh of relief, in theory of colors, Goethe writes, if we may at all hope that natural history will gradually be modified by the principle of deducing the ordinary appearance of nature from higher phenomena, as color in its infinite variety exhibits itself on the surface of living beings, it becomes an important part of the outward indications by means of which we can discover what passes underneath. Certainly color-like sound is one way to understand the spirit. The poem with its physical imagination of color, wind, and sound is another way too. Perhaps the purpose of a life is not to understand the spirit. And so using colors in a poem, using music to write a poem is not important then either. But whatever it is we make of it, I say the delight of life will always be the point. The sharp and searing blue-green mystery, the reason to do anything at all, Tied up in the bloom of one's spirit, reunified in life, reignited by color, poetry is an important way to do this. But what does that mean for poets and poems? The other day was beautiful weather, and in the evening I could see the pink and purple of the sunset affect the clouds. As Stevens writes in A Rabbit as King of the Ghosts, the difficulty to think at the end of the day when the shapeless shadow covers the sun and nothing is left except the light on your fur. Sometimes our words contain at least a handful of colors within them. This is what the poets know. A wonderful poet, Megan McGuire Don, told me recently that the word livid means to become dark purpled and blued with anger or red and flushed with anger and also white with shock. It comes from the Latin word levitere, to be bluish, but this bluishness somehow is transferred over into the colors of the dead, as Mary Shelley wrote, lips livid with the hue of death. I once loved a person who loved the color violet so much that I became purple with my love. Beyond a passion of love, infused with blood, I wasn't even red, I became violet. To become him, I sailed past the problems of indigo. Was he, was I, was he not all forms of flight? Maybe this is what a poem can do, and perhaps it is true what they say. Poetry is a destructive force. To crush all the colors of the spectrum, the pink and purple of the sunset, how is this not one thing? The first time I fell in love, and this was not with the violet one. I got very sick within the first year of our relationship, and my love brought me David Ferry's translation of Gilgamesh to read in bed. In between fevers, I only remembered the blue of the poem's lapis lazuli. Perhaps I will sail across a poem when I sail across the sunset, whatever it is these pink things mean. Or maybe it is like as Nina Simone sang, I intend to be independently blue. Of course I do too. We create poetry in a multicolored universe, not a path but a corkscrew, not a spectrum but a gyre. Perhaps the stages of death containing all forms of flight is our rainbow. Whatever it is, it is a truly tangled rainbow. I look to poetry to help me unravel it. 
And now we'll hear Dorothea Lasky in conversation with visual artist Tiffany Patterson. More information on Patterson, including links to her website and the works they discuss in this conversation, can be found in the description of this episode, as well as on the Bagley Wright Lecture Series website. Do you believe in color me? Like certain colors are meant to be our companions and have had that idea, if you do, has it shifted through your life or like has color ever been like a portal in that way to kind of understanding fate, I guess? Discovering like hot pink or like other colors that have slowly seeped into my artwork have like sort of transformed my work in a way like without those colors I definitely don't think I would be doing the work that I'm doing and I don't know it's it's kind of like astrological signs for me like I don't understand how it works but is really correct it feels sort of kismet that like the color and I exist together in the world at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know what it is. It feels really right, but I can't say that I know what that is. That's what I feel fate is. It's like you have some sense that it was inevitable, but it probably wasn't completely fixed. And of course, depend on things, but then it sort of maybe wasn't meant to be in some way. Like, it's like, just like everything Yeah, talking about, I feel like, fate is kind of bi-directional too you know it's like both things are working in concert together but but it still is true you know <laughs> I definitely have this very like bright pastel sort of like candy coated palette I'm okay with everyone else liking red and using <laughs> red and I do not judge them for it but personally I I do not use red in my work unless it's like a requirement for that piece I don't use red, I use hot pink. And I use, I love hot pink. I think that I could use hot pink for anything that needs to be red, just in general. I don't use very pure colors either. So I use like a lot of kind of muddy colors and very pastel and bright colors. Part of what I want to do with my work is have it be very approachable. Kind of like draw people in and sort of like candy coat it. And then there's like, the darkness within the piece comes out and so it's it's almost like a facade like the bright colors and everything is very optimistic palette and then you know there's like a burning house in the background or something right but it's like hot pink I tend to be more like I tend to not be like a pink person but that's not really true I do I have pink glasses you know it's I'll never turn pink down I have a, like a lot of pink clothes but I don't I don't gravitate towards it as much as I think I gravitate towards red which is like really fascinating because they have such a similar you know tone but they are so different obviously yeah like red to me like the original reason then I would tell people I didn't use red. I always felt like I had to explain it. Like I had to like have a reason and then I would tell them. And then I always just felt like an asshole. Like I never, like, I just stopped telling people. I'm like, I have reasons, but I won't tell you. Like, because I can't justify it with words. But like, like McDonald's uses red and yellow, the primary yeah. colors, because they are the most attention getting colors. There's something that's just so aggressive about red and I want my work to be dark and deep, but I want it to have this approachableness that just, I can't make red work. 
<laughs> it's funny you mentioned McDonald's, Raniello, because I um I like had this book and it was um called Rome, and I like I thought of these Roman soldiers, like Roman warriors, and they used to wear red and yellow. So the book is actually red and yellow. Um, and like I just I like was so happy to always see those those that combination or whatever, and um, yeah. it's just so funny the different. <laughs> Yeah, preferences people have. I I love talking about this with you, and I I wish that there was some way to talk about it with so many people because I feel people carry with them like such infinite histories. I mean, obviously, you as a visual artist, like you have these immense sensibilities that are so wonderful. But I feel like so many people could tell stories about colors in their life if they were asked, and we really don't ask very much. Or I feel like it's like something that we tend to kind of ask people to forget about in a way you know it's like kind of like um you know we have all these preferences as little kids and then like we kind of you know when we grow up we sort of aren't supposed to you know decorate with colors or wear a lot of colors or whatever and so it's like we kind of ask people to submerge that those preferences or something you know like the, the intricacy too like you might still be allowed to say oh I'll pick the blue plate or whatever but you're not like really having deep conversations about it and I feel like it's so sad because it's such a fundamental part of yeah people's history and personality and stuff when you were talking about this idea of how you sort of want to um show your viewer kind of like not like a safe thing but something that's like attractive like candy coated like hey we're just kind of playing here you know there's hot pink and that beautiful like sea foamy minty green that's behind you I feel like there's something uh, that really rang true for me in terms of poetry because I always think um, sometimes people say like, oh, your poems are so funny, um, you know, like, are they, you know, they're kind of strange or something. They like make me laugh. And that used to really always bother me. But I realized that it was kind of something I could use to my advantage because I feel like a lot of times I use humor or disarmament, you know, rhetoric or whatever. Um, to to get people in. I think you made me think of this poem um, of by James Tate called Never Again the Same. And um, it's all about this like sunset that's like just so crazy. You would probably really, yeah, I bet you would really love this poem. And it's just, it's kind of like funny because it's all about people like going nuts over this, like, oh my God, did you see that sunset? And it was just like a fireworks, you know, like it's like yeah. beyond you know, anything that could happen naturally. And it kind of like makes fun of that idea of people like, look at the sunset. And, um, but then also kind of, you really appreciate the sunset in the poem, like in a way that you could like, that is more maybe present to the actual sunsetness than, than like what most people would experience when they're just walking past the sunset or something like it's so dramatic and, yeah. and crazy. But I taught this little class on like flowers and poetry over the summer. And just that idea of how flowers are like hiding in plain sight, but they contain like, like total mystery or whatever. Obviously they're filled with colors that it's like so important to them too. But, um, and just like that feeling like the sublime is always like just right there you know and and you're not you don't really have to like go looking for it it's like right there like almost being asked to be noticed or something yeah it's sort of that that thing where like the thing the state that I've been in in the last few days thinking about this conversation it's like 
when you really look like every single thing has multiple colors like you thought like i have lockers over here they're blue but there's shadows and there's like there's so many different blues within this like it's kind of like if we just slow down and really look like everything is amazing <laughs> i know it's really really true just the way that and also the way material like affects the color you know it's like people just talk about a color like it's fixed but obviously it just changes so much depending on what it's on and where the light hits it and all those things it's like in in constant conversation with its context which i feel like is so much like poetry even though it's maybe super cheesy to say but just like how a poem you know it just always changes even if you've read the poem a million times you're you being different each time is always gonna change it it's always going to be seen in a different light and every person you know it's just like infinite amounts yeah. for it to exist in you know places for it to exist yeah same with viewing art I love that so much like what you bring with you to that experience of hearing a po like a poem or viewing art like is the same like it really affects it yeah it makes me think of my mom because she yeah is a painter and um she has this painting that's always been in our living room and it's in her living room now and it's just yeah she I think she just feels like I, I don't know the story I'm going to make it do it wrong, but I think it's something like she stayed up all night doing it. It's really big um, and it's kind of tans and browns and not colors that she's kind of, I think of when I think of her, it's kind of earthy in that way. Um, but I guess she, when she was in her 20s, she stayed up all night just making it. It's kind of, it's, there's, a, it's like, she's kind of expressionistic style. So it's all emotional and passionate and stuff. And um, I feel like it just for her, like, makes her think of what it was like to be that person staying up, you know, through a night and making that painting and just how it feels like imp probably important to her to remember that person or something. And I wonder yeah. if that's something, you know, with your art, you know, like feeling like the kind of person we are at that point. Yeah. Maybe that's why these two paintings that I'm so drawn to right now are my favorite. And maybe it's the what I was going through when I painted them or what they mean. The the first one is a snake. I'll just show it to you. This is the this is the piece. Ooh, I love it. It's so beautiful. And it's called yeah. From Where We Came. So it's, it's kind of like a minty background color and there's this snake and it um and so there's all of these little sort of squares and where it crosses there's these little rainbows. The whole purpose behind this painting was thinking about the places we've been and how as we move forward those places like come with us all of our past choices and all of our the struggles and everything like we're moving forward but there's this trail behind us of of our life right and so like it's the idea that the snake is like moving forward but it keeps crossing back and it it just it's literally showing from where we came for me like I was going through a divorce and I was finally figuring out who I was as a person and like it was like a very big moment for me and so maybe it's not the painting maybe it's the meaning of the painting the other piece which happens to be right here this piece this piece was done for um a show with a poet actually oh, yeah. 
there's paintings mostly like blues and greens and these very cool colors. And then you have like the vibrancy of that like hot pink and it just makes it so important. If those strings were any other color, like they wouldn't carry the weight that they do within that piece, right? Mm, yeah. I think, I think color can do so much work. When I think about like style, when I explain like someone having a style as an artist, that's kind of how we would say voice, right? Like that's our, our term for that. But like what your style is, it's, it's just like a set of unwritten rules. Yeah. Do you feel like that for, for poet, poetry too? I feel, I feel totally. And I just, I'm always wanting to express how much I feel style is sort of so important. I'm so glad you understand. Cause I remember, I remember once seeing like this person on Goodreads, it's still up there, whatever, just was like kind of blasting my poems. And she was like, this is all style. It's all style and art. Basically this is all artifice. This is all something and I I remember I thought well style is joy though you know like without style what else is there like why would you want to be alive without style and like I mean in every style is possible but like what is the point and um I like yeah like I wrote this poem called style is joy like in like my own irreverent thing to that idea because I feel like again I think like yeah just touching on things like we've already touched on like a lot of times people think that it's an insult to say this is all surface you know what I mean but like the surface has depth you know it's like this is the the choices again it goes back to devaluing kind of aesthetic choices which is so wrong because it's so so important like every person their preferences and their small choices they make are so deep it's so like ingrained and in memory and just like all kinds you know millions of years of people that then this is the person alive in that kind of line or whatever like it's so it's so 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 fundamental and important and like I feel like people oftentimes like don't want to acknowledge that because it's so yeah serious and profound it's like you almost can't handle it or something that and like I, I don't know it makes me mad too how people like just sort of saying like silence those choices and others like oh you don't really like that gray that's an ugly color you don't really want your dress to be you know yellow that's not what you, people wear you know or whatever and it's just like makes me so mad because <laughs> I'm like everyone should be able to make all those choices that should just be a given you know that they everyone just doing whatever they want if you want to wear all cream that's great you know just whatever makes sense to you are there any colors that you don't like yeah I love this question because I think for a long time it might have been like hunter green maroon I think because I was like a teenager in the 90s so I feel like it for a long time it was those colors because I just associated with kind of like unhappiness um but I had a friend named Lucy who was obsessed with dark red like I really like could write like books about her redness like um and it was it, it was like it was sometimes like a brown red um but then sometimes it was like a maroon and especially love velvet I kind, kind of liked all shades of red but never anything like too cherry or bright or anything and yeah. she also loved autumnal stuff like really autumnal like brass 
and mm-hmm. over with that and just kind of really went deep into that color, those colors. Um, yeah. And it made me like love them. Seeing how much she loved that kind of palette. I mean, she didn't really wear like hunter green, but I think it turned me to like being okay with hunter green because it's it's like often with those guys, you know, or whatever. And it just like made me, yeah, it just made it come alive. But I feel like a color that I, I it's so hard to find a color that I don't like because I just love them all. But I feel like there's a shade of green that I don't want to pick. And I was getting some sheets like um, on Amazon. Sorry, I didn't miss that. Um, and, and, uh, and I had to get like a comforter cover or something. And um, I got like, it, it looked like it was going to be this bright, bright, bright green, like the green, like kind of like a neon-y color, like that's in your painting that I can sort of see, not like the yeah. magic, but, and I was like, yes, this is awesome. Um, and then when I got it, it's this green that I really, really don't like. And it's like a kind of muddy green. It's sort, it's not like frog and toad because I like that, but it's like frog and toad kind of gone wrong shade, if that makes sense. Like, not, yeah. not pea soup, like ochre pea soup, because I love that, but like kind of just like, old piece soup that maybe you should throw away or something and now I have this comforter cover and I tried to get another kind and I and I pressed like purple and I was like everything was going to be okay and it's the same color so now I have two of the same, and so it's but it's making me appreciate that color now I'm like because you know I see it all the time associated with comfort so it's it's better and I, I don't know the other color that I probably would put out there and now I'm going to be refuted. So it's going to come in my life and be like, you don't really hate <laughs> It's like, I kind of don't love eggplant. <laughs> Honestly, I do tend to like people when they sort of like colors that I like, or they have like an aesthetic sensibility, like that I can relate to. Like I have a friend and she loves the color orange. And so it's like, just when I'm with her, I feel like already kind of calm that we've agreed upon like orange and yellow and stuff it would just be interesting to pair up people based on their preferences preferences. yeah but I do think it's like such an interesting thing because people feel so passionately about color maybe that's relational to upbringing and like we have so many reasons we prefer the colors that we do and like I don't think we can ever know them well, okay, okay, final question. Okay, so if you could pick one color to surround yourself for the rest of your life, I know this is totally against everything we've just said, because <laughs> ideally you that you would this would never happen, but let's say this happens. I mean this sound does sound like hell, but what yeah. what color would yours be? Mine would probably be yellow ochre um even though I know I would get so sick of it um but at the same time it's the kind of color whenever I see it I'm like okay you know it's kind of like I'm always attracted to it so um not exactly yellow ochre with some green in it you know some like vibrant in it but I feel like I maybe that wouldn't do that but I would be I'd be torn and that would at least be a contender yeah that is such an interesting color to choose for that. Um, <laughs> You're like an interesting, awful choice. No, I don't think so at all. It's very, it's a very complex choice, and I love it so much. Um, I'm gonna go super basic and be like the color of the sun when it's smoky, like that 
ridiculously fluorescent orange that is like yeah. almost magical that it like it shouldn't exist yeah. I think that it's like so optimistic that I just that's probably the color yeah it's interesting I don't think it would be like the calming choice over like a long period of time but, <laughs> but it would be weird but we both choose colors that would be kind of adding adding excitement all the time I feel like that's what would suck like I'd be like probably the best choice would be to pick you know cream or something like that that you're never gonna really get sick of but but like yeah. I would, I would want to be stimulated all the time even in ways that were kind of negative that was Dorothea Lasky giving her lecture, What is Color in Poetry, or Is It the Wild Wind in the Space of the Word? Followed by a conversation on color between Lasky and visual artist Tiffany Patterson. This is the second episode in season two. Next week, we'll be back with On the Materiality of the Imagination. Lasky's book of collected Bagley Wright Lecture Series lectures, Animal, was published by Wave Books in 2019 and is available for purchase at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. Visit us at our website, bagleywrightlectureseries.org, for more information about these and other lectures by Joshua Beckman, Dorothea Lasky, Timothy Donnelly, Srikanth Reddy, Terence Hayes, Rachel Zucker, Cedar Saigo, Renee Gladman, Lisa Jarneau, and Douglas Kearney, as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker, with help from Caitlin Airy Johnson. Thank you to New York University for partnering with us on this event, and thank you for listening. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.